0: Each April, many in greater Boston, I would suggest thousands, including myself, contemplate the same thing. What is it we think about? Running a marathon. We watch the Boston Marathon, perhaps it's a sunny 70-degree day, we're standing along there, maybe watching it on television, and we think, I think I want to give that a try. We see the many watching, we see footage of the finish line, people crossing the line and the satisfaction and joy that they feel, and we think, I want in on that. Many of us, including myself, Google, how do you get from here to there? How do you go from couch to finishing the marathon? That ends it for many of us, so we set it aside. I like, that was a bad idea, I was just feeling crazy. But then a few think, you know what, I want to move forward. I want to chart a path towards running a marathon. So you start to run, we start to run. But you run a little ways and you remember, oh wait, running is hard. In fact, sometimes running is physically painful. So the vast majority of us slowly trickle away until there's only a few left who have a desire to, to persevere and actually run the marathon. Now, those who do run marathons say to those of us who don't, things like, yes, it is very hard, but it's good. It's satisfying. It feels like I'm going to die, and yet it feels like I'm living. And to push through and to finish the race is something I've really never experienced before. It's true, there are these ups and downs, these hills and valleys But it's worth it. But I and many of us remain unconvinced, don't we? Well, there are aspects of the Christian life that are much like this. Hard. Even painful. Feel like we're almost dying. And yet, there's a goodness, a joy in persevering. Staying the course. And today in our passage, we'll see two of those areas where it's costly to be faithful and it's good. So if you have a Bible, turn to me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 19. Today we'll be in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. In the Bible's near you, you can find it on page 824. Page 824. I encourage you to open up a Bible app or open up a Bible just so you can see the text in front of you so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the large numbers are chapter 19. The smaller numbers beginning in verse 1. I'll mention those throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So at the back of the room, there's a table, a sign that says free Bibles. Please, following the service, stop by there, grab one of those Bibles, and take it with you today. So we we'll continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, Such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Follow Jesus in persevering costly faithfulness. Follow Jesus in persevering costly faithfulness. And we'll see this in two parts today. First, faithfulness in marriage. And second, faithfulness in singleness. So faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in singleness. Now first we see faithfulness in marriage in verses one through nine. We see in verse one and two that Jesus moves to another geographic location. And as he moves, as has been happening, large crowds come. And a large crowd Jesus teaches and he heals. And then we see in verse three that some come to him, some of the Pharisees were told, which were a key party within Judaism of that day. And they came to Jesus, but they did not come with good motives. They didn't come with teachable hearts. They weren't eager to learn. Instead, we're told they came to test Jesus. We see the test in verse 3. They ask this Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What were they hoping to accomplish in their test? It's like they, at one level they were hoping Jesus would say something that would undermine his reputation with the crowds. They had noticed these crowds, massive crowds coming to hear Jesus. They were opposed to Jesus. So, so perhaps he would say something controversial that would cause the crowds to lighten up. Or perhaps he would contradict Moses and the Moses teaching we have in the Old Testament. Or maybe he'd say something about the divorce of Herod. After all, that's what had led to John the Baptist being arrested and beheaded. So maybe Jesus would speak into that, and then Jesus could be arrested for that. Now, in the Jewish culture of that day, the question really wasn't whether divorce was permissible, but the question was, under what grounds was it permissible? And within Judaism of that day, there were two dominant schools. One, the school of Shammai, which was more conservative And their view was that a man could only divorce his wife in cases of indecency, and the only indecency they would allow was for uh, immorality, for adultery. So if the woman committed adultery, divorce was allowable, but that was the only condition. The other the school of Hillel, was more liberal. They believed that divorce could be granted really for almost any reason. If the wife did not do what the husband wanted, even if she cooked a bad meal, or if he simply found another woman at some point in life he found to be more attractive Then a divorce was allowable. And so it's the midst of these different views, the Pharisees come to Jesus to find out what does Jesus think about this? So Jesus' response, picking up in verse 4, looking at verse 4, Jesus begins by saying this, have you not read? And this is less than a question and more of a subtle jab at these who've come to him. For these Pharisees were devoted to the scriptures, knew them well, they would have memorized this passage. So when Jesus says, have you not read? He's really saying, you have read. You've read this. You know this, because they certainly did know this. And so Jesus begins by citing Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. As he says, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So they ask a question, but Jesus begins by pointing back back before the fall, back before sin entered the world, when God created them, male and female. And that continues to be the case today. That except for a very small number of exceptional situations, they are created male and female. And one exception is the condition that falls under this umbrella description of intersex. It's an umbrella term that covers a wide variation in sex development. One author describes intersex this way. Intersex is a physical condition affecting people whose chromosomes, genitals, and gonads do not allow them to be distinctively identified as male or female at birth. This is one exceptional situation. This is not the same as transgender. Then Jesus continues and cites Genesis 2.24 in verse 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We should know that Jesus clearly views the Old Testament scriptures as God's authoritative word. So if you wonder, how does Jesus view them? He views them as this is the very word of God as he quotes them here. And again, he points back to before the fall to when God created marriage. Where one man and one woman would leave their parents, would hold fast cleave to one another, and the two become one flesh. So the God who designed humanity also designed it that these two sexes, a man and a woman, should come together in this one flesh union. And the sense of this one flesh is of uh, being glued together, welded together as one. In Genesis, we see that Eve was created from a rib of Adam. So the Adam, when he saw Eve, said of her, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So in that case, the one flesh union is basically this rib being rejoined. Finally, this unity together. And in society in that day where familiar relationships were of such great importance, this union is now to take precedence over every other relationship. Even over the relationship of a parent and a child, this marital relationship is seen as much more important in God's good design. So the covenant of marriage is to be between one man and a one woman in in a lasting, even permanent commitment. To be intimate at every level, physical, emotional, spiritual. So we see at the end of verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, Let not man separate. So we see that Jesus agrees with Genesis, that it is God himself who joins the two together in the covenant of marriage. This joining together is not simply an agreement. It's not simply some sort of civil arrangement. It's not even only a contract, but it's this deep, God-ordained, God-initiated covenant. Therefore, who are we to try to break it apart? Whether I'm the one in the covenant, who am I to break that covenant apart? Or were I to try to cause someone else to break it apart? Who are we to try to separate what God has joined together? To divorce is to try to break this one flesh union, which is like trying to tear a single body into two. So the Pharisees ask questions about the details of divorce, but Jesus takes the conversation to a much higher level. The Pharisees listen to Jesus' response, and they have another question. Look down at verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So here they're alluding to Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus answers verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So Jesus is saying that this allowance for divorce was made Because of people's sinfulness, these certificates of divorce that started under Moses were intended not to encourage divorce, but to in fact protect women who are being abused through this action of divorce. So to seek to undermine how freely divorce was happening and to give some order to it. And this was not a command, but only a concession because of the hard-heartedness of people, the sinfulness of people. Jesus goes on, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So in light of this, how were Jesus' disciples and how are we who are Jesus' disciples today to think about divorce? Well, first of all, friends, we recognize divorce is a terribly painful and personal topic. I'd safely guess that nearly everyone, if not everyone in this room, have had a close connection to divorce. Deep pain that you have experienced from it. And we look at this topic today not to hurt those who've already been wounded, not to heap condemnation, nor to crush, but to try to understand God's good design, how we live in this world that. Think so little of marriage. Now, there's no way in our time together that we can tackle all the questions and all the concerns related to marriage and divorce. And so, friend, just know if there are additional questions you have, I would love to speak to you after the service or arrange a time to do that, or you can do that with any of the elders of our church. We would love to speak with you about this. For instance, Jesus is calling those who follow him to a higher view of marriage. And to view divorce and remarriage with great seriousness. So are there any grounds for divorce? Well, yes, we see one in our passage today. We we saw it previously in Matthew 5. That when a spouse commits adultery, divorce is permissible. We want to note that it's not mandatory. It's not required. uh, Certainly it would be tremendously difficult to persevere in a marriage when someone has been unfaithful to you. But it is possible. Another ground for divorce we find in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul describes a situation where there are two people, likely two people who are not Christians, who are married, and one of them becomes a Christian. And the question is, what should they do? And the instruction is, the one who is married should stay in the marriage. But if in time, the one who is not a Christian wanted a divorce because of that other person's faith, that in that case, it is allowable. For the other person is breaking the covenant, leaving the marriage because of this commitment. The desire would be for the Christian to stay as long as possible, but it is allowable in that situation. And most Christians would also say that in the case of abuse, that too is a person breaking the covenant. And there too, then, divorce is permissible. I mean, if you find yourself in an abusive marriage, we. Mourn with you. We would say to you, "Don't try to go it alone." We would love to try to help you, protect you, care for you. So it can be very difficult to ask for help, but we would urge you to ask for help. So if you feel at liberty to ask one of the elders, we would love to intervene on your behalf. If you're not even feel uh, comfortable to do that, ask another member of the church. Please don't continue to live. In an abusive situation. Now, how a divorce might be carried out, whether it's on biblical grounds or not, then impacts whether one can remarry in a biblical way. And the weight of what Jesus is saying is that marriage matters greatly to God and therefore should matter greatly to us. It matters because marriage is a covenant relationship, as I mentioned, designed by God. He designed it for his glory and for our own good. Marriage also matters because it's intended by God to point to the bigger story of the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand this in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The story of Christianity is of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came to this earth, took on flesh, lived a perfect, sinless, always faithful life. And then out of God's great love, Jesus went to the cross, and there on the cross, he would pay for our sins our rebellion, our going of our own way. He died in our place. He was buried, raised on the third day so that through that, he would secure this salvation that's held out to any and all who would receive it by faith, to any and all who would admit they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And if you're not a Christian, that's what we want you to hear today. Most of all, Jesus came to rescue sinners like us. There's grace and mercy available for you. Now this mystery is that marriage, God created, is intended to be a picture or a symbol or a parable pointing to the reality of Christ and the church. That's why marriage matters so much. And marital love within the covenant of marriage is to be an imperfect reflection that is sure of the always faithful love of God. So when spouses are faithful to one another, an echo of God's perfect faithfulness. For Jesus is faithful to his bride, the church. He will never commit adultery against her. He will never forsake his bride. Friend, if you're a Christian, he will never forsake you. And he intends marriage to be a reminder, a pointer to his faithfulness. Marriage also matters to Jesus because there are image bearers who matter to Jesus in every marriage. And they're image bearers who matter to Jesus in every family. And these image bearers are often hurt by divorce. The spouses who are often devastated. Children, as many of you are, children of divorce. Profoundly impacted. And the pain of divorce makes sense because if the two have become one, there's no way to separate it without it being a great pain. So divorce is a tremendously serious matter. So if you're here today and you have been divorced, obviously no one knows the pain of divorce like you do. And this time together today is not intended to add to your pain. Please know that divorce is not the ultimate sin. It is not an unforgivable sin. Christ died to forgive sins. By his grace, he restores and he heals. My friend, perhaps you experienced divorce and it wasn't your choice. You were against it. Perhaps your spouse was unfaithful to you. Your spouse abandoned you or abused you. But we're so very sorry that you have faced that we would like to join in serving and comforting you, caring for you. We pray that you would know the, the comfort, the grace, the healing that God provides. If in the past you divorced your spouse, and if you're honest, it was your fault. You know there, there wasn't actually a biblical reason for it, and you moved forward into divorce. divorce. I want you to know the good news is there is forgiveness in there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ there is healing and hope we want you to know wherever you are in that spectrum you are welcomed here by us and most importantly welcomed by Jesus now often when we think about divorce we dwell upon the exceptions but the vast majority of divorces in our society are not found in exceptions most divorces in our culture today are simply when one or the other or both decided, I just don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I want to be happy. I think I can be happier outside of this. I tried. We tried. It's time to end it. So in light of this, there's some things that we would want to consider. So friend, first, for those of us who are currently married, friends, the fact is marriage is typically hard. If you find yourself in a marriage and it's almost never hard, bring, give thanks to God. That is a beautiful gift, give thanks. But that's just not normal. If you think about it logically, it makes sense. It would be surprising if marriage wasn't hard. Two people, two sinners, even two sinners saved by grace, a man and a woman, two different family backgrounds, trying to share all of life. It's a recipe for difficulty. So we shouldn't be surprised that marriage is often difficult. And because it's difficult, friends, we will have to work at it to give time and attention to marriage. And yet it's so easy to neglect it. And friend, because marriage is difficult, and especially when you find your marriage difficult, friend, be careful about the temptation to compare your marriage to other couples. When you're in the midst of a hard time, it's easy to look around and think that everybody else has it all together. So perhaps last night or last week was a a really hard point in your marriage. And you walk in this morning and you look around at other couples and he's smiling, she's smiling, they're laughing. And you think everyone else here has it all together except for us. Friends, that's just not true. At any given time, as we might expect, in the life of this church, there are many of us who struggle in And especially don't look at social media for this. Because every picture of every couple is always the highlights of life. Not only are we happy, we're in Cancun. We're so happy together, we're in Hawaii this time. And so you compare yourself and say, we can't even go to coffee together. And here they are living the life on the beach. Don't compare yourselves. We know deep down that's not reality. And yet it still can be devastating when we're hurting. Friends, there can also be wisdom at times to ask for help. That might be asking the church for help, asking another member to help. But also there's a a biblical counselor in the city, Boston Center for Biblical Counseling, that we as a church support financially. And we would love to pay for you to go if that would be helpful to you. So it could be the two of you go together. Or maybe your spouse isn't willing to go. We'd be happy to pay for you to go if that's possible That's a starting place. And friends, in the midst of struggles, but even in the midst of good days, friend, guard yourself from temptation. Adultery, lust, is always a real temptation. So, friend, don't be naive. Do not think that you could not be tempted. So be wise and be careful and always doubt your own ability to resist temptation. Friend, if you're a Christian, you find yourself married to someone who's not a Christian, what should you do? You should stay in the marriage. The Apostle Paul is clear on this. Stay in the marriage. Seek to glorify God. Continue to pray for your spouse as I know that you are. And we would love to pray with you for your spouse to come to real saving faith. Friends, for all who are married, the call is to persevere in costly. Sadly, our current culture will not help us. It says basically leave any time you want for any reason. Even other Christians often will not help us. We find ourselves in a really hard place and we're trying to persevere. So often they'll say, hey, you, you tried. You deserve to be happy. Maybe divorce really is best for you. Friends, there's certainly more to marriage than pursuing faithfulness. But it's not less than that. There's more than perseverance, but not less than perseverance. Because the fact is, our seasons of happiness and our season of valleys are not an accurate indicator. Our hearts are deceptive, our sin can blind us. So we need some others who love us and love Jesus who will say to us, "Don't give up, keep going." Don't quit now, Persevere and find help., I want you to see the beauty of faithful endurance. And to persevere with all the strength that you have, knowing the good news is the strength that you have comes from God himself. He will strengthen you to persevere. Author Glenn Harrison says it this way. A couple celebrating their wedding anniversary actually offer a stronger picture of God's love than a couple getting married. The essence of faithfulness is that it holds steady in the face of alternatives. Faithfulness is nurtured, tested, And in the end, strengthened by temptations. The wife and husband who remain faithful to each other for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, not only bear testimony to the kind of love that God has for us, but they put it on display. We have lots of weddings here at Hope. because the age of our congregation, where we are in the city, and it's a great joy. It's a fun day, The, the room is beautiful, people are dressed up, you get to meet family and friends from around the country that come in. It's exciting, this, this couple comes, they're, they're excited, they're often young, the relationship honestly is untested, so they're incredibly naive and optimistic, it's incredible. And they come down the aisle, and they take the vows, and I announce them husband and wife, and, and I have to hold on to them because they're ready to just run out, they're so excited about being married. And it is truly beautiful, it's a good thing. But there's an even greater beauty available for that couple and every couple. But that's in the future. At year 5, the 5th anniversary. At the 10th anniversary. At the 25th anniversary. Lord willing at the 50th anniversary. The truth is they don't look as young on those days as they did when they were married. And they no longer are naive. They've faced some tests, some hard tests. And they won't sprint down the aisle anymore. In fact, they'll likely walk with a limp. Yes, on one level, it's a limp of age, but also it's a a limp of persevering faithfulness in marriage. They've been through some valleys. They've been tempted to give up. By God's grace, they've stayed the course. Friends, that is beautiful. So let's aspire to that with every marriage in this church. Let's fight for that. Let's not give up. We tell an important aspect of the story when we faithfully pursue the covenant of marriage. Now, to so those who are single, if you desire to be married, let's let me encourage you, seek someone who would love Jesus more than they love you. And look for someone who would be willing to enter into the commitment of marriage and commit for life. Who would say boldly, till death do us part when they take the vows. If you were to marry, who are you to marry? Well, the Bible only gives one qualifier. And that is that your spouse must, if you're a Christian, your spouse must be a Christian. No other qualifier is there. But he or she must be a Christian. Why? It's because we're entering into this covenant relationship to tell a story of Christ and the church. In order for us to do that, we must both know Christ to do that. So the grace of God is at work in each of us, the spirit of God in each of us as we seek to tell this bigger story. We also need it on a practical level because following Christ in this world is hard. And will be made harder if your spouse doesn't know Christ. And let me be clear, marrying a Christian does not guarantee a happier nor easier marriage. But it does promise the presence of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God to help you endure. And for if you're not a Christian today, you may think, you know, what I'm saying is that Christians think they're better than everyone else. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Christians understand how potentially bad we are. The power of sin in us. That's why we need to marry someone else who knows the grace of God because of the power of sin in us. Now, in our culture today, at least in the U.S., you will likely marry someone who you date. If you'd like, I could arrange a marriage for you, but most people prefer dating. So if you're going to only marry a Christian and you're going to marry someone you date, I just think wisdom says you should back up and only date someone who you can marry. And the reality is, this is a hard one to take. And so often I've had a conversation with someone who says, yes, I'm a Christian. He's not. There's no way I would ever marry him. So we're dating, it's true, but I'm praying for him to know Christ, but I would not move forward to marriage. And she's convinced on that day when she tells me that. But it almost always happened in time, months, maybe years, the conversation becomes, no, he's not a Christian yet, but. I can't imagine not marrying him. Our love is so strong, I couldn't live without him. And so they move forward in marriage, and I can tell you so many painful conversations later of men and women who are married and find themselves in the midst of very painful, often lonely marriage because they don't share this deepest identity as a follower of Jesus. So out of love for you, let me urge you, Ate someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Now, friend, if you're here today and you're not married, please do not hear me saying that you must pursue marriage because that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. You can glorify God in singleness as well as in marriage. That leads us to the second part, faithfulness in singleness. We see it in verses 10 to 12, faithfulness in singleness. Notice the disciples' response to Jesus. Verse 10, they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife... It's better not to marry. So they hear Jesus talk about the design, the seriousness, the intended permanence of marriage, and they say, that's too much. Maybe it's better just to avoid marriage. And we should see that Jesus doesn't dispute the weightiness of what they felt. But he says, not everyone can receive this saying, the saying, it's better not to marry, but only to those whom it's been given. Then Jesus explains there are three groups who take up this vision of not marrying. Verse 12, he says, some, there, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. So there are a number of conditions that can make sexual desire less or make intimacy impossible. And that person may then have no desire for marriage or choose not to be married in light of that. Then there are those who are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. In the world of that day, it was very uncommon for young men who served in the king's court to be forcibly made eunuchs so they could not be sexually unfaithful with any of the women who the king was with. That was regularly done in the society of that day. And then third, there's some who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. This doesn't refer to someone literally making themselves a eunuch, but choosing to embrace the life of the eunuch for the sake of being able to more freely engage in the mission of Jesus. And friends, both Jesus Jesus and also we understand the Apostle Paul were not married and lived as eunuchs for the sake of their greater mission. Author Sam Alberry, who's also single, writes this. We need to remember that Jesus made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus willingly became fully human for us. He was a sexual being as well as we are but he lived a celibate lifestyle. He never married. He never even entered a romantic relationship. He never had sex. He's the example of a perfect man. He's the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. So his not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human being. The moment we say otherwise, the moment we claim a life of celibacy is dehumanizing, we're implying that Jesus himself is only subhuman. But we need to hear that and understand that. Because our culture would say to ask someone to be celibate is dehumanizing. But Jesus, the ultimate human, embraced this path. Because the New Testament is clear there is a beautiful, fruitful, valuable life in the kingdom for those who are not married. 1 Corinthians 7, the Paul explicitly elevates the value of singleness. He describes it not as something to be endured nor to be escaped, but it's described as being preferable, to be embraced. So, friend, there's a wonderful kingdom life to be lived, a life of flourishing for you in singleness. This can be true whether you see yourself pursuing an entire life of singleness or if you have a desire to be married at, at some point in time, but you aren't yet. In the Old Testament, the call was to be fruitful and multiply. And the way that God's people were fruitful and multiplied was was literally through reproduction, having children. Because God's people were a literal, physical nation. So the only way you grew the nation was to have more children. So for an individual to be fruitful and multiply, they must have children. But now, friends, in the new covenant, in Jesus' kingdom, we're no longer based upon a, a nation or a bloodline. How does one enter the kingdom of Jesus now? It's not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. So then how then do we be fruitful and multiply? It is to share the good news and make disciples. So, friend, the good news is whether you are married or single, you can have countless offspring in the kingdom as we share Jesus' good news with others and disciple them. So, friend, if you're never married in this life, you can have an incredible spiritual family. God uses your life for good in the spread of the gospel. So, friend, if you're single today, do you see that Jesus is calling you to faithfulness? A persevering, costly faithfulness of choosing the path of celibacy for the glory of God. And through this, you have a chance to tell a better story to family members, to friends, to our society. As you don't deny, you have this very real desire. what you say through your life and through your actions, there's something even greater than these desires. Our culture says most of all, embrace your desires. To be a true person, you must express every desire that you have. Author Glenn Harrison says it this way. It's important to grasp that single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Both paint pictures of God's faithfulness, but in different ways. Denying yourself something can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Both single and married people who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond point to the same thing. They both deploy their sexuality in ways that serve as a sign of the kingdom and the faithful character of God's passion. In refusing to have sex outside of marriage, the single person witnesses the unbreakable link between passion and faithfulness. So, friend, hear this. As you embrace this path as a single, you say, Christ is sufficient. And, friend, if this is where you are now in time, I would encourage you to to share this with some other brothers and sisters. Say, pray for me that I can be faithful in pursuing celibacy. Friends, we see that godly singleness is countercultural and it's costly. It's always costly to follow Jesus. It's costly not to join the broken practices of our culture that embraces all sorts of forms of sex outside of marriage. But godly singleness is also fruitful and beautiful. It's beautiful as you show Christ is sufficient. It's beautiful as you show that there's something So soul-satisfying. It's beautiful as you show that there's something so soul-satisfying that you can choose not to pursue one of the strongest desires that a human has for this greater pursuit. So the call to all believers is to faithfulness. Faithfulness that echoes the faithfulness of our God. So for the one who is married, it's a call to faithfulness in marriage until death do we part. To the single, it's a call to faithfulness in celibacy for life or until you get married, if you were to get married. And so we face the very important question, do we believe that Jesus really knows the way to true human flourishing? And is it really found on this difficult, costly path of perseverance? In a broken society that misuses sex, that doesn't see the value of marriage, we have the chance to be salt and light as we're scattered to the city and to the world. To show and to point to a better way, the way of true freedom instead of enslavement. Friends, the good news is Jesus has shown us the way. He walked the earth in faithfulness, resisting temptation. My friends, as we seek to pursue faithfulness, we have the example of Jesus and the very spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you to help you persevere, to help you fight for faithfulness. We, we don't have a strength on our own, but the good news is Christ is in you and with you. With every step you take to walk in faithfulness, he will empower you to keep going Friend, if today you've been living outside of faithfulness, let me encourage you today, repent and turn back. Ultimately, life is not found in unfaithfulness. Turn back today. And then let's pursue this together. Praying for those who are single and those who are married. Supporting and serving one another where God has placed us. The key point in the Boston Marathon is what they call Heartbreak Hill. It's not the only hill. There are many hills. It's not the biggest hill, but it is a, a key hill where the race has changed. It's often one of the last hills that's so hard to climb. So if you've ever had a chance to be at Heartbreak Hill and stand there, it's it's amazing to, to see the runners and to see some of them make their way just barely up the hill. And to see some stop at the bottom of the hill you can almost see the wheels turning in their head. Maybe it's time to give up. I don't know if I can make it up the hill. Maybe I just to step off the track. So they stand there for a while. But then there are hundreds if not thousands of people standing there. And people began to cheer and say, you can do it. They might call him or her by her name, their, their number. Say, don't give up. Keep going. Think about how far you've come. You can make it. And they stand there, and they stand there, and they stand there, and then eventually just one step, and then another step, and another step. Before long, with just a shuffle, they're moving on down the race. They came so close to giving up, so close to stepping off. With the support, the encouragement of others, they finish the race. Friends, That's what we do together in the church. We are to be for one another. Married and single, for one another, saying, you can do it. It's worth it. Don't give up. Persevere. And most importantly, Jesus says, I am with you by the Spirit. Don't give up. Persevere. Don't quit. It will be. Let's pursue that faithfulness.